going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. And we're going to be in chapter 7 again because last week I had really grand ideas and the most pure heart and cover it, I wanted to cover the whole chapter last week and it just didn't work out that way, 40 verses long and we got through all of nine verses. And so the new plan, the amended plan, is to uh, cover verses 10 through 16 this week and then we will have one more week where we cover the back end of the chapter and the topic of singleness next week, Lord willing. You also might want to flip over to Matthew chapter 19 and tuck your finger in there um, because we're going to be flipping back and forth between both texts. Uh, Before we get started this morning, um, I do want to offer you some reassurance in the gospel. Uh, These are topics, divorce and marriage and remarriage, uh, that are difficult to discuss. The Bible has teachings in it that are good and pure for us, but these are also very hard teachings. And so as we work through the text, I imagine there will be some slicing open of old scars and some scratching off of new scabs. And I don't want you to crumble beneath your sin before we get to the good part. And so I want to get to the the good part right now. Um, Most of us have experienced and walked through some of the trauma and difficulty that comes along with divorce and um, remarriage and and all all these different issues. And so I just, I, I I don't want to defang or domesticate the Bible's teaching here. But, but I just want to remind you that if you are someone that has uh, sinned in, by getting a, a divorce, you entered into an unbiblical divorce, or if you are someone that sinned by entering into an unbiblical remarriage, there's grace for you. That you can, you can take those sins that might feel like the biggest sins of your life that you could never get over, and you can stick them in, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians with the, the list of other things when Paul says, uh, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says, don't be deceived. And he lists all these terrible sins. Uh, you can throw your sins in there. Because if you've put your faith in Christ, you're in verse 11 where Paul says, and some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so if you have put your faith in Jesus, friend, your sin, your divorce, your unbiblical remarriage, it doesn't define you any longer. What defines you is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, you have been washed, that is cleansed of your sin. You have been sanctified, that's set apart for God's holy use, and you have been justified. You've been forgiven and acquitted of your guilt as a prisoner that was on death row, released from that prison, set free into society, but not only that, you are now celebrated as a hero because Jesus' righteousness is credited to you as if it were your righteousness. Jesus earned the Congressional Medal of Honor, and it's as if it was being hung around your neck instead. This is what it means to be united with Christ. He died for your sins so that your relationship with Him might be what identifies you rather than your imperfection. For those of us that have trusted in Christ, it's important to note that we're, we're not perfect Right? We're not now perfect, we still sin, but we are progressing. The mark of a Christian is repentance, habitual repentance as a way of life. And so in this life, we are trying to become and practice what God has declared us to be in Christ, which is holy. So we are changing people. Everyone in this room is a sinner. And so if you've committed the particular sins that we are entering into today, Yes, feel the weight of them. But then be reminded that the weight of those sins was placed on the shoulders of Christ as He died a substitutionary death in your place. 
Be reminded that in Jesus you have resurrection life. And friend, if you are outside of Christ, I want you to know this morning that this offer of having your sins paid for is available to you. You need only turn from your sins. Turn from these things which you've built the meaning of your life on. Turn from these things that you've built the purpose of your life on instead of Jesus. Turn away from them and cling to Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to turn from our sins and to follow Jesus. And I implore you, if you don't know him, to follow him this morning. All that in mind, we're getting ready to approach chapter 7 again. And before I set the stage, what we'll do is we'll pray, and then we'll sort all of this out and then get into the text. It'll take a minute to get there, but trust me, we will. Let's pray together. Father, as the sun is full of light, as heaven is full of glory, as the oceans are full of water, fill us, make us full with your Holy Spirit. Do not allow our sinfulness or our distractedness obscure what it is you would have to say to us in your word this morning. We thank you that your word is living and active, that it's sharp and cuts us to the quick in order to bring healing. And so we pray that you would indeed cut us this morning, that you might heal us. Heal us with the gospel once more. Father, we are all messy sinners in desperate need of your grace. Your grace is the means by which we experience relationship with you through Christ. And it is the means by which we become more like him. And so give us your grace that we might apply these teachings to our own lives. Help us to see Jesus as beautiful this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a few things we have to get straight at the outset are, are two big questions that people typically come to the text with. Really one big question. Is this inspired? Is this the authoritative word of God? And if you were here last week, this is repeat, but listen again. Repetition is the mother of learning, right? And so there are sections in which Paul says, the Lord says, and then he says a little sum sum, and then he says, but I say, or something similar to that. And some have come along and said, Paul here, everything else he's saying, it's just his opinion. It's not really inspired. It's not authoritative. It's not binding on us as the Word of God. That's silly. Well, what's going on here when Paul employs the term the Lord, what he's referring to there is the Lord Jesus. And as you might imagine, in the early church, it was really, really important to delineate between what Jesus taught in his earthly life and what Jesus was teaching now through the mouths and the pens of the apostles. They wanted to make it clear what Jesus had said while he was here and what they were saying now through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is saying this is what Jesus taught in his earthly ministry, but he didn't speak to this very specific situation, and so now I'm going to speak into that situation. With me? And so it's all inspired. It's all the Word of God. We are to submit to every letter of Scripture, including the words written in chapter 7. It's not as if Paul is filled with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit one second like a balloon. It's filled with air, and then the next second he is popped with a pin and whew, no more inspiration. And then he gets filled up again. It doesn't, it's not uh, oscillating like that. He is writing God's Word. And so we are to submit to it. The second thing I want to bring your attention to is that the Corinthians are bold enough to ask this question, if you look in chapter 7, verse 1, what we have there is a quote from the Corinthians. Uh, they say, uh, in a letter to him that they'd written, it is, is it good for a man not to use a woman for sex? Or is it good for a man not to touch a woman? And what's gone on here, there are two groups in Corinth. Uh, there's the group he dealt with at the end of chapter 6, 
uh, where they are going, we can only sin in our spirit, so it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. And Paul's like, no, 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 y'all, it matters what you do with your bodies. This is the more hedonistic group, the group that's saying, if it feels good, do it. The group he's dealing with in chapter 7 is the group that's saying, if it feels good, don't do it. Right? They're more ascetic. And so they've become Christians, and what's happened is celibacy is being held up as this superior spiritual position. Remember, these Corinthians love to boast in everything but Christ alone. And so celibacy has become something to boast in. I'm, I'm, I'm celibate even though I'm married, and so I'm more spiritual than you. And they're asking Paul here, is this true? Is this good? The big question underneath chapter 7 is how do we honor God in our relational situations? Is it more honoring to God if we are married or if we are single and celibate? And we have said that marriage is tantamount to um, enjoying sexual activity in chapter 7 and singleness is tantamount to remaining celibate in chapter 7, right? Both of those in chapter 7. I said 6 earlier. Amending that is an error. The idea is, Paul is saying sex is not bad. It's very good when it's enjoyed inside of its covenant context. He's saying celibacy is also very good if you are not married. If you're married and you're celibate, he's saying that's problematic, right? That was our whole deal last week, and we're going to get there in a second and back up. Seven, verse 7 is a paradigm for the whole chapter. Paul says, I wish that all were as I am, but as it is, each has a gift from God. One has this gift and another that. And the gifts he's referring to are the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. And so he's, these are not gifts of capacity, but situation. You know, if you're married, you have the gift of marriage. If you're single, you have the gift of singleness. If you're married, Paul commands you in the front end of chapter 7, uh, do not deny one another of your conjugal rights. Have sex. Have sex regularly. And the only time to abstain is if you are praying. And even then, only for a little while. And then come together again. And if you remember my buddy's uh, emendation to that text, and again, and again, and again. This is a renewal of the covenant. We, we distinguished in terms of sexuality last week that the proper context for all or any sexual activity is inside the covenant of marriage. That that is where God wants sexual activity to take place. He's designed us for it. We, we set it up like this, that um, sex outside of marriage is a consumeristic approach to the relationship, whereas sex inside of marriage, properly functioning, is an expression of the covenant relationship. And so, so here's the difference. Uh, I love Amazon. Buy everything on there. I told you I lost my wedding ring last week, ironically enough, as we entered into these matters. But I ordered another one from Amazon, and it was here like the next day. That one didn't fit, so I sent it back, and Amazon sent me one in the right size. They're awesome. But if a company comes along that does things a little bit better, a little bit faster, a little bit cheaper than Amazon, our relationship is over. Because as a consumer, Amazon exists to meet my needs. They need to adjust their business model to my needs if they want to keep me as a customer. That's a consumeristic approach to sexuality. The other hand we have is the covenant approach to sexuality. The covenant approach says not you are, exist to meet my needs, not you adjust so that I have my needs met, but I will adjust to your needs. Because in covenant, we are not declaring present love. That's the con consumeristic relationship, right? I presently love Amazon, but if something else comes along, I'm going to love it more. Covenant is not a declaration of present love, but a promise of future love. And it's only in the soil of covenant that sex makes any sense. Because what sex is is a sign and a seal of that covenant. It is the coming together of two people into one. It is the giving of the whole self to the other. And one not ought give themselves sexually without giving them whole cell, their whole selves in terms of promise. And that's why a 
legal marriage is more sexy than a we're just going to live together and be in relationship with one another relationship. Because there are binding covenant promises. That's sexy. We have it written down. We've promised before the Lord and one another that we are going to be in relationship forever and ever. Amen. And so that's what we did last week. This week we will see, after Paul has told them, hey, if you're married, stop being celibate, that's sin, get together, have sex. Now he's saying, if you're married, stay married. Right? That's going to be his primary point. If you want to look with me at verses 10 and 11 in chapter 7. To the married I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. He's quoting Jesus' teaching here from Mark 10 specifically. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Let's set this next to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 3. See, I told you we would get there. I didn't lie. I got flipped there myself. Starting in verse 3 in Matthew chapter 19, uh, some Pharisees roll up to Jesus and they ask him this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? This question is not a random question. It is rooted in a discussion that was going on in Judaism at the time over the proper interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, which is really the only place in the Old Testament that divorce is really mentioned. And so there were two primary schools of thought. The school of Hillel, which said, you can divorce for any and every reason. Because there's a word there uh, in Deuteronomy 24 that probably brought across as indecency. And so for any indecency you find in your wife, you can give her a a certificate of divorce. And they're saying, that's legitimate divorce no matter what. So if she burns your dinner and you think that's indecent, divorce her, right? Done. On the other hand, you had the school of Shammai, another popular rabbi, and he had a more narrow view of what qualified for indecency. And so they were trying to get Jesus to side with one or the other and cause a great stir. And Jesus does cause a great stir, but he doesn't side with one school or the other. He, he sides with himself. He's the best rabbi. And so he responds in verse 4. Haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus changes the entire scope of the discussion. They're going, this, is, this passage in Deuteronomy 24 is how we should understand marriage and divorce. And Jesus says, no, 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 my friends. We need to go all the way back to the beginning if you want to see God's ideal. To that place in Genesis 2 where the story of humanity opens with a naked man singing love songs to a naked woman in the presence of God, unashamed, in perfect relationship with God. And God is saying, this is good. This is unity. So the first marriage where God makes the two one flesh, one person. Jesus says, marriage is a miracle of God that ought not be undone. It's a miracle in which God unites husband and wife. And that spiritual reality is portrayed in their physical union. In the act of sex, two different persons become one. They become most one in the very areas where they are most different. love what C.S. Lewis says on this. He writes, When Jesus said the two would become one flesh, he was not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact. Just as one is stating a fact when he says that a lock and its key are one mechanism, or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument, 
The inventor of the human machine was telling us its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. One flesh. This union that is expressed in the covenant of marriage, in the act of sex, is not in and of itself, it does, it's not meant to exist in a vacuum. What it does is it teaches us about the promises and the, the pleasures that exist in God. It teaches us about the relationship between Jesus and His church. If you're a Christian, marriage and sex are designed to for you to enjoy, yes, but to point you to the one who, is, who will give you supreme satisfaction. Ephesians 5. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Your marriage is meant to teach you about Jesus. Sex exists for your pleasure, yes, but also to teach you about Jesus. And so, in the promises of marriage, the covenant of marriage, we learn about the promises of God extended to us, wherein God says to us, in Christ, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. My love will not fail. It will not falter. But I will be with you forever and ever without end. Amen. I am yours and you are mine, even though you will screw it up. Oh, that's the gospel. Sex inside of marriage also teaches us about the pleasures that exist in relationship with Christ. At the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. Our capacity for delight in this life is limited. And any delight you have, including the delights of sexual activity with your wife, are meant to be a foretaste of what is to come. They point to a reality that is more profound than themselves. And so, uh, in the same way that the wedding ring points you to the fact that I am married points to a reality that's more profound than itself. So too does the marriage itself point to a reality more profound than itself. It points us to Christ and the church. It teaches us about the gospel. Marriage is an acting out of the gospel story. And, and hear me here. That means that every in your marriage is an opportunity for you to live out, to act out the gospel as the one who is granting forgiveness or as the one who is pleading for it. Repentance and forgiveness and fellowship, oneness. And so the primary point of Jesus here and Paul there, is stay married. Lewis comments again, Divorce should be regarded as something like cutting up a living body, as a kind of surgical operation. Some churches think the operation so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit it as a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having both of your legs cut off than it is dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. The command of God, the ideal of God, is that we would stay married. The Bible has a very high view of marriage and sexuality. One that isn't about having your needs met, but about rightly communicating who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus' teaching continues in verse 7. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In verse 7, the Pharisees say, why then did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? 
uh, first of all, Moses didn't command them. There was a provision in the law for them, and the papers were aimed at protecting the woman so she didn't get taken advantage of. That's the really short version. If you want the long version, I'll give it to you later. Jesus continues, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. It was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And so what Jesus is saying is if you have an unbiblical divorce and then are married to someone else, God doesn't recognize that unbiblical divorce. So when you enter into a second marriage, God sees that as adultery, as sin. The text goes on in verse 10. I do love the disciples' reaction. Notice it. His disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Like, if I can't get out of this deal fairly easily, we might as well stay single. And Jesus responds, verse 11, You're right. Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. This is single people, right? And there are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. Here's the point. Jesus is saying it's better, you're right, it's better to remain single and celibate than to marry and divorce. Jesus is not a fan of no-fault divorce. He desires no divorce. That's the ideal. That's the point of the text. That's the point of Paul's text in 2 Corinthians 2. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians as well. There are, however, in my estimation, and there's disagreement on this, two provisions primarily wherein divorce is biblical. We have one of them here in verse 9 of chapter 19. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. The term here is porneia. It's the term from which we get our term pornography. And it should be translated probably in your, in your translation as sexual immorality because it's a very broad term that encompasses all kinds of dysfunction. Uh, it's, it certainly includes adultery, but it's not limited to adultery. And Jesus is saying these are grounds on, the only grounds on which divorce can take place. Some people comment that this, this exception clause, the, the Mithean exception clause, doesn't show up in Mark or Luke when Jesus addresses issues. But it's my contention that he doesn't address it there because it would be assumed in the culture. Uh, according to Old Testament law, if you committed adultery, you died, right? And in that case, uh, somebody that is dead is no longer bound by their wedding vows. They're free to remarry, as Paul says in chapter 7, verse 39 of 1 Corinthians. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. And so, I think that this would be assumed by both Mark and Luke as they're writing, right? They would have assumed the exception. If your partner should be dead, then it's permissible for you to, to get a divorce in the case of porneia. The second uh, exception, we can call it, that we see or provision for divorce is in chapter 7 here in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read to you verses 12 through 15, comment on the provision for divorce at length, and then we will get back to exegeting verses 12 to 16, and we'll, and we'll conclude. Verse 12. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, Paul's addressing specific situations in Corinth, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. 
a brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. The word for leaving or separating is the word horizo in Greek, and it can be translated as separate or leave or divorce, right? It's the, wor- it's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19.6 when he says, let no man separate. That's what this word means. Because you could also read the text, if, if her husband, for the unbelieving husband made holy by the wife, let me find the right verse here. But if the unbeliever leaves, or if the unbeliever divorces, if the unbeliever separates, let him leave. And so it's my contention that this abandonment or desertion is biblical grounds for divorce. Because Paul says in such cases, the person who is being abandoned is no longer bound. And the word for bound there uh, comes from the word that means slave. Uh, if you have an ESV, it will actually read the, um, that the innocent person, the person that's abandoned, is no longer enslaved to the marriage. They're no longer bound. Verse 39 in this same chapter has the same language. A wife is no longer bound, no longer enslaved, as long as her husband is living. And so in such situations, I think Paul is teaching us that uh, the one who has been sinned against is able to get a biblical divorce and remarry. I think what Paul has in mind here in chapter 7 uh, is a situation like, that I heard about like this. Uh, there was a woman, and her and her husband, a few years prior to her conversion, got married with the understanding that they would have an open marriage. And so they would actually go to orgies together and to husband and wife swapping parties. They, w- they would swing. It was part of their lifestyle. And when she became a Christian, uh, she said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. She went so far as to say, I want to stay married to you, and, and you can continue to do this, but I, I can no longer participate. And her husband said at that point, you're not the woman I married. And he divorced her. He, he divorced her because of her Christian faith, because of her conversion. And so Paul is saying, in a situation where you're divorced because of your faith, that's legitimate. I think that's what's immediately in view in this context. But I also think what Paul teaches here applies more broadly. Uh, and what I, before I enter into some of these discussions, uh, these areas of divorce and remarriage are the most complex that I deal with as a pastor. They're the most complex that, that I think we deal with as, as a church. And so as we try to adjudicate them, we need to do so with gentleness and humility, a, a submission to the scriptures, prayer, and as Dr. Carson notes, some sanctified common sense. And so in terms of abandonment or divorce or, or leave, separating, I think that this also applies to situations wherein spousal abuse occurs. So hear me out. I don't think the principle underneath Paul's provision is one of geography. Geographical location isn't the principle under the provision. Rather, the desertion provision is undergirded by a renunciation of one's marital vows. So, for example, geographically, a soldier can be overseas away from his wife and still faithfully married to her. Whereas an abuser, physical or emotional, can live in the same house with his spouse but have completely abandoned them by, comp- by renunciating their marital vows. Friends, spousal abuse is inconsistent with marital fidelity. Now, not every inconsistency is grounds for divorce, surely. But sometimes violation of marital vows becomes so severe that no real commitment remains. So it's my contention that areas such as abuse, physical or emotional, fall under this abandonment provision for a biblical divorce.
And so if I'm, if I'm counseling a Christian who's married to an unbeliever in this situation, I'm going to say what you need to do is remove yourself from that situation. If it's physical abuse, that's a crime, and you need to report it to the proper authorities. And then you need to, to pursue reconciliation. It might mean over the next year or two you have a really hard time and you only meet with your spouse in a public space so that you can ensure your safety. Or it might mean that you aren't able to reconcile at all, that you, that you have to stay separated. And eventually go to divorce because of this provision. But reconciliation needs to be on the table before this provision is taken advantage of. And the question is, but, but what if we're both Christians and I'm in an abusive situation? I think the counsel is the same. Move out, separate, report the crime if there's a crime at hand, pursue reconciliation, and then wait. The truth is, most of these complicated marital issues are usually solved if you wait long enough. If you wait long enough, pornea happens. It's just the reality of the world we live in. But let's say you are waiting and you're going, what Paul says, if it's two Christians, we need to stay married, that we ought not divorce. That's what, what Jesus says. Well, if you're in an abusive relationship, and we've said that the abusive relationship breaks the covenant, it's abandonment, but it seems like your spouse is still a Christian. How does this provision fit into that situation? And this is where the church is so important. Like I, I tell you all the time, church membership matters. Because the question is not who says they're a Christian, but who the local church recognizes as a Christian, right? The local church is the authority on earth Jesus has established to affirm and give shape to our Christianity. And so, in a situation like this, the, the person is separated and they've pursued reconciliation, it's not working out, uh, the abuser wants to continue abusing, they are in unrepentant sin, the process of church discipline ought to be taking place. And by virtue of the church's removal of that affirmation of their Christianity, their excommunicating of the unrepentant sinner, unrepentance is a sign of unbelief, if you do not repent of sin, you are not a Christian, they put that person out and say, this person is not a Christian, and now the qualification for the abandonment provision is met. See how that works? And so I think that these are important areas for us to recognize that um, divorce is sometimes permissible in these really, really ugly situations, and it's, these are complex matters to navigate. Now, if some of these provisions for divorce are met, do you have to get a divorce? No. No. Divorce is never required in Scripture, but it is sometimes permitted. If you have been sinned against in these ways, you have the right to a divorce, but you don't have to take advantage of that right. Instead, you can lay down that right and display supernatural forgiveness as you pursue reconciliation. And as those who have been supernaturally forgiven, why not? Why not extend the same loving grace and kindness and forgiveness to your spouse that Christ has given to you? A couple practical questions and then I want to move on. What do I do if I'm unbiblically divorced? The counsel here is simple. If pornea has not taken place in terms of a remarriage, if there's, if there's any chance at reconciliation, pursue reconciliation. If there is no chance at reconciliation, confess the divorce of sin to God and enjoy his forgiveness. A fun question I get sometimes is, what if I'm unbiblically divorced and unbiblically remarried? Does that mean I should get another divorce to make things right? Two wrongs don't make a right, and nor do three. Confess the past sin as sin, enjoy the forgiveness of God, and honor your current marriage. Love your spouse the way Christ loves the church. Divorce and remarriage that are unbiblical 
are not unforgivable sins. They are forgivable, but they are also not the ideal. We want to have a biblical posture towards these matters. And I think we're given a picture of a biblical posture in verses 12 through 16, if you want to look at them again with me. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. And husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Uh, A question that undergirds this section is that question of sex. And they're going, if I've become a Christian and my spouse isn't a Christian, is it okay for us to stay married? Is it okay for us to continue engaging in sexual activity? Because of what Paul said in chapter 6, right? And Paul is saying, yes, you need to do that. No, you don't need to get a divorce. The big picture of this whole chapter, chapter 7, is that no matter what your relational situation, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in in life, God can save you in it and he can use you in it. You don't need to get married to be more holy and to honor God. You don't need to get unmarried to be holy and honor God. He says, remain in the situation you are in and honor God. Honor God where you are. He can use you where you are. If you are married to an unbeliever, God will use you. Walk with God in your situation. Be faithful. You are a blessing to your spouse and to your children. You do not save them. That's not what this section means. They'll be made holy right, by you. It's not a salvific holy. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But they are set apart to God in some way. I don't know what it is. But, but the way I think it works is that you have an unparalleled gospel influence in their lives by being a continual gospel presence in their lives. Your children are blessed by your faith as you teach them the ways of Christ with your words and your actions. Your husband is blessed by your faith as you teach them the gospel by your words and your actions. Your unbelieving wife is blessed by your gospel proclamation, both in word and deed. Friend, do not give up. Stay married. Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep loving. And beg God to use you to bring about their salvation if He sees fit. Walk with God faithfully in your situation. He can use you. Stay married and preach the gospel with your marriage. Paul's concern and his counsel to the Corinthians is the same as Jesus' teaching to the Pharisees. Stay married. Work to preserve your marriages. There's a news story, not recently any longer. I've shared it with you before a long time ago. About a couple named Cindy and Chip. And Cindy and Chip had decided that over the years, they'd been married about 10 years, they had grown apart. And therefore, that required a divorce. And so they were going through the process of getting a divorce, and Chip had begun seeing other women, but something happened. He, he came down with a terrible disease. He, he had kidney infection, and he needed a new kidney or he was not going to live. And Cindy, despite the fact they were in the process of divorce, despite the fact that he was seeing other women, came to the hospital and offered her kidney so that he might live. 
doctors performed the kidney transplant, and then as they were both recovering in the hospital, something funny happened. They were reminded of their promises to one another, reminded of the sacrificial nature of marriage. Chip broke off his relationship, and they decided to remain married. They were married, whenever the last time I shared this was, for 17 years. Here's the point. How hard should you work to save your marriage? You should be willing to give up a kidney. You should be willing to sacrifice as Christ has sacrificed for you. He gave much more than a kidney. He gave his hands and his feet and his side and his brow and his back. He poured out his blood, all of it, for you. So you might pour out yourself for your spouse and for others. Marital difficulties are opportunities to act out the gospel. When I think of this type of supernatural love, I always think of the story of the great theologian B.B. Warfield. Y'all might not know him, but he, he's kind of a giant. He wrote a ton of stuff, and the things that he wrote that is still read today helped so many people would not have been possible if not for the most difficult of providences in his life. He was married in 1876 to his sweetheart, Annie. And on their honeymoon, Annie and Mr. Warfield were walking through the Haas, I think is how you say it, probably grosser in German, like Haas, not nice, Haas Mountains in Germany. And as they're walking through the mountains on their honeymoon in Germany, a storm came that they were unprepared for. And Annie was struck by lightning an event that left her basically an invalid for the rest of her days. She would only get worse and worse as time went on. And even though his wedding vows were fresh, they just crossed his lips, Mr. Warfield did not use this as an excuse to abandon them but instead was reminded of his resolve to keep them. He cared for her throughout the rest of her life until she passed away in 1915. He gave up all these professional opportunities that he had, and they were myriad, so that he could be at her side. Wouldn't accept speaking opportunities because he had to be away from his wife. According to sources close to Warfield, he was never away from her for more than two hours constantly reading to her, constantly caring for her. This is how we should love our spouses. This is how we should love one another. This is a picture of the gospel. We are sick invalids with no hope of recovery. And then the Spirit of God comes and breathes life into us. And by faith in Christ, we become united to Him in marriage. And death no longer becomes our destiny, but life. And He promises us in covenant. My precious child, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And he does not leave our side, not even for two hours, not even for two minutes, not even for two seconds. He remains. His steadfast love endures forever. He always keeps his word. This is the God. This is the gospel that we are mirroring in our momentary marriages. This is the God for whom we exist. And He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so friends, resolve this morning to turn from your sins once more and delight in God. Repent of these 
momentary pleasures that you have given yourself to, that you have worshipped in His place, and cling to His cross. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. He has promised us that those who trust in Him, though we die, yet shall we live. Because He is the resurrection and the life. And He keeps His promises. He will not fail you, friends. He will not give up on you. He has not given up on you. Even now. Even at your worst. Even though you might feel as if you are abandoned in a prison with criminals, He is there. Even though you might feel that you have been forsaken, you are not. He forsook Jesus on the cross. He left Jesus alone on the cross so that you would never have to be alone. So that you could know the God of the universe loves you enough to die for you, in your place, for your sins. How can you not love a God like this? First John, Henry read it to us this morning, says, we love Him because He first loved us. The only response to a God like this is to love Him. Is to love Him. Do you love Him? Do you love Him? Oh, there is nothing better. There's nothing more glorious than being in this theological marriage with Christ as His church. Church, you are the bride of Christ. He is your bridegroom. He is your bridegroom. And I hope that you will look forward to His returning to make all things well, to jettison all sorrow and all sin, to make all things new. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, You are so good to us. All of Your gifts are meant to teach us about You. And we stupidly, foolishly worship those gifts instead of You. We give ourselves to sex and drink and money. Idols. Forgive us. Forgive us. Lead us to repentance that we might do what it is we were designed to do, which is worship you. Enjoy dynamic, lasting, blissful, pleasureful relationship with you inside of your holy covenant. You have resolved to save us, and you will not fail. Hallelujah. Amen.